Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done nearly 700 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you'd like to help support it, if you appreciate it, go to the website and there are PayPal buttons on every page. My guest today is Jennifer Lisa Vest. Jennifer Lisa is a scientist, philosopher, intuitive. She holds a PhD in indigenous philosophy from UC Berkeley, an MA in history from Howard, and a BA in physics from Hampshire College. Her first career was as a philosophy professor at Seattle University and the University of Central Florida. Spiritually, Jennifer Vest is a medical intuitive and an Akashic Records reader, is certified as a quantum healing hypnosis technique practitioner and a master Reiki practitioner, and has been trained in the traditions of African-American hoodoo, Native American sweat lodge, Jamaican revivalism, Trinidadian shango, and spiritualism from community elders. As you'll probably hear in our conversation, She's big on training, not just hanging out a shingle and doing your thing, but being adequately trained by people who are qualified to train you before trying to do something. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, Jennifer wrote a book called The Ethical Psychic, which I enjoyed very much. And uh, as you may know, I'm part of an organization called the Association for Spiritual Integrity, And when I read the book, I thought the other folks on the board of directors of that organization need to read this too. So Jennifer graciously allowed me to send them copies of it. And uh, at least one of them is listening to the audiobook, I think. But that association, it's not just focused on psychics, although there are people in that sort of niche who are our members, but our membership, over 550 people now, include people from all across the spectrum of spiritual disciplines and and traditions. And what we're doing, I think, is increasingly appreciated in the broader spiritual community. So we're going to use her book as a outline of sorts, the chapter titles and the subtitles, to discuss various points that she considers important for a professional psychic, but all these points apply equally, most of them apply equally to any sort of spiritual practitioner or teacher. But before I get into that, let's talk a little bit more about you, Jennifer. It sounds like you had certain gifts from early childhood and uh, certain elders in your family and so on who recognized those gifts and encouraged you. So let's start talking about your history a little bit before we get into your book. Well, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, Let's see, where should I start? I remember my birth. I remember all the spirits in the hospital. And for as long as I can remember, I've always had all of these spirit teachers around me, guiding me and teaching me. Do you see them or you just intuit their presence? Well, both. I don't see them as much anymore. I can see them when I want to. When I was younger, it was more something where I was more aware of them visibly. I actually got to a certain point in my life when I was in my, I think, 30s, where I decided I didn't want to have objective clairvoyance anymore. I didn't want to be walking around and seeing spirits anymore because I found it disruptive. And so I just said, okay, you're not allowed to appear to me this way anymore. 
And from that point on, I don't tend to see spirits out in the world when I'm walking around. It's when I sit down and set the intention to talk to them. And I close my eyes to look at them because I don't like to have my eyes open and see spirits walking around because then you don't know, are you seeing spirits? Are you hallucinating? Are you crazy? Right? (laughs) So (laughs) I had some friends when I was younger who did develop various forms of psychosis and schizophrenia and whatnot. And I think I decided at that point that I wanted to make sure that I was always tuning in spiritually and not having mental issues. And so I did start to kind of change the way I worked in light of those experiences with some of my friends. So, you know, objective clairvoyance is when you just, your eyes are open and you're just seeing spirits the way you see everything else. And subjective clairvoyance is when you see it in your head, you know, Mm -hmm. close your eyes and you just see it inside. And so I switched to subjective clairvoyance at a certain point. As a kid, I would see spirits kind of out in the world, hear them, feel them. And I just had a lot of scary experiences, and that's why I changed the way I work. I also had some great teachers in mediumship who taught me that I'm in control of how I communicate with spirits. And when I was younger, I didn't know that. And so I had a lot of scary experiences because I didn't know that I was in control of the communication. When you're a kid, you kind of think that you're just the victim of or at the receiving end of whatever spirits want to do. And so I had, as a child, a lot of nightmares. I had a lot of dead people hanging out in my bedroom, talking about their deaths. So that made me have kind of a love-hate relationship with the gifts. At the same time, I had these spirit teachers who were taking me out of my body at night and taking me to spirit school, which was nice. And I was in this classroom with all these little balls of lights. And I had a a very strong connection to this group of classmates that we were in what people probably today would call a soul family together or soul grouping. And so I had this awareness very early on that I was in this group, that I was not alone, but I was angry. I remember when I was young, I was angry because there were 13 of us and 12 of them were on the other world. And I was the only one who incarnated. And I thought, why did I have to come to earth? It's so dark and dismal down here. And it's so light and beautiful up there. And they were like, you're the lucky one. You get to go to earth. And I'm like, doesn't feel very lucky. (laughs) So I was kind of angry about it when I was younger, but My guides would take me to different places also. Sometimes they would take me to different parts of the world. Sometimes they would take me into the future or the past. I was shown all my past lives when I was about 12, and I wrote them down. I remember I found the notes when I was older where I'd just written down a list of all these lives and deaths. The benefit of that was that I didn't have a fear of death. From an early age, I had no fear of death because I remember dying many times and it was always a nice thing. I mean, once you get to the other side, it's always a nice thing. The dying part's hard. (laughs) But once you get past the dying part, it's quite lovely. Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Right, right. (laughs) And we just skip that part. (laughs) So I was always getting, you know, kind of training from my spirit teachers. You know, at a certain point in my 20s, I remember they showed me all of these catastrophes and genocides that were going to happen in the future. Again, it was very hard to watch. So again, I had this love-hate relationship with my gifts. Even in my 20s, I was like, do I really want to know all this? When I was a kid, I would see the auras around trees. And I used to spend a lot of time in nature by myself. And I would go into other dimensions. There was this one little hill near my grandparents' house. And when I went up on that hill, 
you could look across this valley and, and see the other side. And sometimes I would go up there and I would be in the same place, but I would just transition to a different version of that place, which I assumed was a different time or a different dimension. I'm not really sure. But the trees changed, the plants changed, and it was a different time. And so I used to do that as a kid. I used to see little people, what we call fairies or gnomes or whatever, when I was young. I was very empathic, and that was very challenging. I was feeling other people's illnesses and feelings. I couldn't be in hospitals because I could feel everyone's sickness But I was also aware of all the spirits in the hospital. The hospital's haunted. It's full of dead people who died in the hospital and who are very upset. Most hospitals are? Yeah. And until they start doing ceremonies, it's going to always be like that. Like they should be doing ceremonies. All those people dying in the hospital without ceremonies. And so you have people who died and they, they just weren't prepared to die or they were shocked by it or they didn't have the right understanding of death and then they're like hanging out in the hospital trying to get their body back or trying to fix the problem or they're angry with their doctors and they're following them around or there's different reasons people stick around but the hospitals are full of that and it doesn't have to be that way that's another conversation yeah i interviewed a guy a year or two ago named father nathan castle who stumbled into this ability to help stuck souls cross over. And that's what he does now. I guess he's a regular priest, but he um, just has this ability and the church doesn't give him a hard time about it. And he manages to help people who are in some limbo state because they died suddenly and they're not happy about it to move on. It's such an important gift. We need to do that more often. I often tell people about Edith Fiore. She wrote a book called The Unquiet Dead. And she has a script in the back of the book that you can use to help guide spirits to the light. I've used that on occasion. I found it useful. Yeah, we need more people doing that work. Yeah. There are a few things in what you just said that I'd like to ask you more details about before we go on to other things. You know, you mentioned past lives. Is there anything noteworthy about that or is it just a whole bunch of lives that you went through? And you know. Well, you know, as a kid, it was just a kind of a jumble. I don't remember a lot of them, but I remembered that I had the strong memory of how peaceful drowning was. Hmm. And yet later on, when I was in my early 20s, I almost drowned in Santa Monica and it was not peaceful at all. (laughs) It's because you're fighting to live. That's the struggle. I wasn't trying to to die, you know, I was young. But I do remember clearly that peacefulness of being underwater and then dying. The other thing I can remember about that is that I was every kind of person. I didn't have any strong attachment when I was young to being one gender or one kind of you know, looking person or anything because it was clear that I had been everybody. Been Chinese, I'd been African, I'd been Indian, I'd been white. You know, I'd just been a lot of different you know, males, females. I've been a lot of different things in past lives, looked a lot of different ways, had a lot of different types of lives. When I was older... I started to do a lot of past life regression work with hypnotherapists. And then I started to get more detailed past life information. And now at this point in my life, I can just go in on my own and get information. So just a couple of days ago, I ended up visiting a past life. Now I'm forgetting what prompted it, but you know, sometimes something will happen and it'll take me to a past life. Like I'll meet somebody 
and we'll have a past life connection. And then suddenly I'll go into that past life and see what our connection was. Hey, I'm wondering something. I have a friend, good friend, who just the other day told me that she actually tunes into people's past lives. She'd never told me about that. And I was curious because a couple of people who claim to have some psychic abilities told me that I was one particular person who was pretty famous. And I said, what do you think? Was I him? And she said, I'm getting like 15%. And I, was, I said, what do you mean 15%? She said, well, we're kind of a conglomeration when we come into this life, we're not necessarily one entire soul that existed in a previous life. We could pick up 15% of this one and 20% of that one. And that differed from everything I've ever understood about this. I always assumed that one soul transmigrates from life to life to life. But I guess in Buddhism, they think of it more that way. Like you take a bucket of karma from the ocean and it's mixed with all kinds of things. Whereas in Hinduism, there tends to be more one particular soul evolves through a series of bodies. So do you have any insights on that? Yeah, I think my understanding matches more closely with like Vedantin philosophy, this idea that we have a soul and then above that we have an oversoul and then above that we're all connected. In the Brahmin, you know, we have a Atman and a little Jiva, a little personality on earth. That's very similar to my experience. So I'm aware that I have what might be called a soul or an oversoul, but that that soul has incarnated into multiple lifetimes. And the wisdom obtained from all of those lifetimes is available to me if I know how to meditate and access the higher self and, and I can draw down from that wisdom. It was explained to me that our understanding of past lives as being sequential or linear is not quite accurate. It's just the way that our human minds have to understand it, that in fact, we are living all of our lives simultaneously. And that's why different lifetimes that we're living can inform other lifetimes that we're living. So I've had the experience, I mean, at nighttime, you know, a lot of us go out of our bodies, you know, I'm seminal and the seminal believe that everyone leaves their body at night. And we just think of it as dreams, but we all leave our body at night. Some of us just float above, some of us go on journeys. And depending upon your level of um, awareness and depending upon your life purpose and and, and your soul purpose, you, you may be involved in different things at night. So like at night, I'm involved in a lot of like healing and committee work out of body. There are other people that are going to spirit school. Like when I was younger, I went to spirit school. Some of us now teach spirit school when we're out of body at night. And some of us will visit our other lifetimes. And so there was a time in my life when I used to wake up in the morning and have to ask myself, okay, which life is this? <laughs> my myself of my name and the, the location and the, the year. <laughs> okay, this is the Jennifer Lisa life where I'm living in the 21st century. And that's because I have some awareness of some of my other lives. Most people don't have an awareness of their other lives. And that's because it's not necessary for their life purpose. And so a lot of us, a lot of people who incarnate don't have to remember their past lives and would find it distracting or confusing if they did. And so there's a veil of forgetfulness over them and they just kind of focus on this life. And then there are others of us who, because we came here to do a certain type of work that requires us to be able to see things so that we can teach and help others, those of us then are given access to other lifetimes and to a greater awareness of the soul. So the way I see it is like, there's little me, little Jennifer Lisa, this one little little incarnation, 
And then above that, there's this higher self or soul. And like I see it like a triangle where it's divided into little slivers. Each sliver is a different lifetime and there's hundreds of lifetimes and they're all kind of feeding information into this one soul. But then above that, we have what you might call an oversoul, like Jane Roberts called the oversoul, where there are lots of souls that together create an even larger entity. And then each of those is kind of feeding wisdom from our experiences into this larger understanding. And if you go all the way up, we're all one. Just one undifferentiated ocean. Yes. Part of this larger creator. That's my understanding of it. That's cool. I resonate with that myself. And this whole thing about lifetimes being simultaneous, I'm just listening to the next person I'm going to interview. She's a physicist and most of it is over my head, but she's talking about time at the moment and how it appears linear to us, but that's just sort of a human filtering mechanism and that in fact, it's not as linear as it might appear. So that could account for the simultaneous lifetimes thing. Yeah. Um, When I was in college, I did my first independent study on the philosophy of time. That was the conclusion I came to. I was looking at philosophy and physics. And the conclusion I came to was that it's a perception that we perceive life this way, that we perceive time. That's just a construct that we need as humans, because anyone who's spent any amount of time out of the body will be aware of the timeless nature of existence and the way in which we can move through time as if there are no boundaries, past and future. Well, speaking of future, you also mentioned that early on, I guess you were in your 20s, you had some visions of catastrophic future scenarios, you know, genocides and things like that. Have those come to pass or are we talking about something that might come in the in the coming decades? I think they've come to pass. I saw things like the genocide in Rwanda. Rwanda. I saw these terrible, terrible images of all of these bodies stacked up in warehouses or something. And then later I saw those pictures in the news that were reminiscent of the visions I had been shown in my in my 20s, but I think it happened maybe about 10 years later or something. And then a lot of the things I saw, the natural disasters, I think we've seen happening. You're having all these hurricanes and flooding and fires. Which are probably going to get more intense like, as we go yeah, along. I feel like yeah. I've seen a lot, of, a lot of it happen already. I'm going to interview a guy at the end of this month who wrote a book, called Breaking Together. His name is Jem Bendel. And his basic premise is that the whole society is structured unsustainably and that we're inevitably headed for some kind of major collapse. Whether you look at economics or politics or climate change or, you know, this, that, or the other thing, everything is based on the premise of the possibility of continuous growth and unlimited growth, but the resources which would enable that are reaching an overshoot point where we can't really rely on them anymore. Do you have any prognostications about that sort of thing? I do not. I do do some future work. I try to limit it. I'm not fond of precognition as a gift. It's something I have, but it's not something I like. And it's precisely because a lot of the things that those of us who see the future can see, they're often we often see dramatic events. And the thing about the future is it's not set. There's no future that's already there. There are possibilities. And so anytime you predict the future, you're predicting a possibility and the timeline can change and we may not reach that possibility. And so I think when you hear about people like that saying, oh, the current system is unsustainable and we're headed for a collapse, 
I mean, certainly there's a lot of evidence to make that claim scientifically, but as a psychic, I'm not going to forecast doom because it's not consistent with my life purpose. Even when I get information that's scary, like, you know, in my podcast, Journal of a Medical Intuitive, I was um, talking a lot about the coronavirus during the height of the pandemic, and I was getting a lot of high-level information, including predictions, and a lot of them did come to pass, but I didn't include on my podcast everything I got because anything I got that I thought might inspire hysteria or fear or doom, I don't share because that's not consistent with what I came to do. I came to help shift the consciousness up. And when people enter into fear patterns, they find it very difficult to move forward and to make positive change. So I do tend to avoid any predictions like that. And then there are some people, and maybe this author you're talking about, that's their job. Like they came to do that work. (laughs) They came to enlighten people about those scenarios and those possibilities. You know, there were some things I predicted about the coronavirus, which I didn't want to because I was worried it was going to inspire fear. Like when it first hit, people didn't think it was a really big deal at first. And I said right away, it's going to kill 5 million people. And I got some pushback from some of some people who listened to my podcast. And they were like, how can you say that? That's horrible. That's really scary. I think it might have killed 20 million worldwide. I'm not sure if they know exactly, but it did turn out pretty bad. There was something I was given about. There was this turning point that if we hit 5 million, there was the potential for there to be real change. And if we went past like 10 million or something, then it could become debilitating. And I don't know, there were different things in the the prediction. And some people were very upset about that. And it did turn out to be the case, whatever that number was. But at the time, it felt like that information was going to help people to kind of get serious about it and take steps in a positive direction. That's something I think it's important when we're doing when we're doing predictions. Is it going to be helpful to people? Does it have a purpose when we tell people right. this happen? How's it going to help people? And I'm with you on the elevating consciousness point because whatever the future may be, the most important thing is for consciousness to be elevated in collective consciousness around the world. That's where the greatest leverage lies. And that's been a motivating factor for me since I was in my late teens, early 20s. It's a sort of deep motivation for why I even do this show. And that's what this guy, Jem Bendel, has come around to, that sort of a spiritual renaissance of some sort is our greatest hope in terms of mitigating much more dire consequences. That's the thing is that if we look at the current course we're on, we can certainly predict a a lot of bad things. And yes, it's not sustainable, but we can also see that there's rising consciousness globally. And that's a whole different track that we're on. And if we get on that track, then everything changes. And that might be why a lot of things are being shaken now, because there are a lot of entrenched systems that really wouldn't fit very well in a a society of much higher consciousness. So perhaps their foundations are being pulled out from under them a little bit. Right. right. That's usually the way we learn, you know, because we're hard-headed. Yeah. (laughs) All righty. Well, let's get into your book. The book is called The Ethical Psychic. You have a copy of it there? You know. Don't worry about it. I'll put a link to it on your BatGap page and people can get it. The outline of the book, the, the chapter titles and subheadings are a very nice outline that we can go right through to structure this conversation. So 
The first chapter is called The Traits of an Ethical Psychic. And remember, we're not just talking about psychics here. Given the nature of this show, we're talking about spiritual teachers, healers, psychics, anybody in this genre, this area. Most of the points you make apply to all of them. So these traits, traits number one, and I think this is good that you made this number one, is being of service. If that's not your motivation, why would you be doing it? You know, you'd be surprised. A lot of people work as a psychic without being motivated by the goal of being of service. And you can think of it the way you think about any gifts. You know, if somebody's a very good carpenter or they're very good at public speaking, they don't necessarily think, oh, how can I use this gift to be of service? Some people just think, oh, how can I make money with this gift? (laughs) And the same thing happens with psychics. Some people are like, oh, I've got these great gifts. How can I make money with it? You know, or how can I use it to spring myself into fame? How can I get status or fame with my gifts? Some people who go into it thinking they want to be of service can get really corrupted by the temptation of money or fame. So that's part of why I wrote the book and why I put that in there is because I've seen that happen. I've seen people who may start off with good intentions get a lot of attention, get a lot of success, start making a lot of money, and then they kind of forget why they originally started doing this work. Yes, I've seen that too. It kind of goes to your head if you have all these adoring people batting their eyes at you and you start making some pretty good money and so on and so forth. I think that's why in many spiritual traditions, there's a, a long apprenticeship. Even if you achieve some spiritual awakening, it's like, okay, now wait another 10 years before you start to teach. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, that's one of the things I'm always trying to impress upon my students. And it's kind of challenging in the kind of modern West that we're in, because there's this expectation in our current society that you can just go take a weekend course and then call yourself an expert in something that you learned over the weekend. So people do that. They take a weekend Reiki class and they're like, I'm a Reiki master now. And it's like, "Uh, no, you're not. (laughs) You know, the way I was taught Reiki, it took a year just to get the training. And then you're supposed to spend a year practicing, and then you're supposed to spend several years before you even think about teaching it. But it's like that in most indigenous cultures, that if you are a medicine person or you have some gift, first of all, the expectation is always that you're using your gifts for the community to be of service. And the expectation also is that you are being trained by somebody and that you are, yeah, going to be in a long apprenticeship program of some kind. And so because we don't have all of those apprenticeship programs in place today, a lot of indigenous cultures have been you know, eroded or stuff's had to go underground. There's been a lot of oppression. Of course, a lot of indigenous practices, African, Native American, Polynesian, have been outlawed for the last several hundred years, and they're just starting to rise back up. And so there's a lot of reasons why it's not so easy to get the same training that maybe our ancestors were able to get. But even though that's the case, There's no reason why we can't set that up as our goal and have our own forms of apprenticeship. So, you know, I got training by a whole lot of people and took a lot of classes. Thank you. My brother-in-law was nice enough to- Oh, there's the book. There it is. (laughs) Isn't it pretty? Yeah, very nice. And what you're saying here, obviously, is something we would we would hope that our brain surgeon or our airline pilot or, you know, one of these other types of professions have had. They had it in certain fields. Like what I tell people is that even if you're not enrolled formally in an apprenticeship program, you can 
treat your gift that way. So like after I got so much training from so many people, I still didn't go into practice. I didn't hang a shingle. I went and I volunteered for many years. I helped everybody for free. I helped all my friends and family. I started volunteering at a church. I volunteered at metaphysical bookstores. Then I started working for people at very low rates because I need the practice. You need the apprenticeship. You need to keep practicing and getting better before you're actually going to make this a profession. And so there's ways for us to, first of all, make sure we get lots of training from as many teachers as we can. And then also be slow and cautious before we start to kind of set ourselves up as practitioners of any of these, whether it's you're a healer or a psychic, just before you set up practice, you make sure, have I gone through enough training? Have I practiced enough? And I think all that relates to the being of service point, because if we really want to be of service, then we, we don't want to be a rank beginner if we're actually dealing with other human beings. We, we want to make sure that we're not going to disserve or, or harm them in any way by not knowing what we're doing. So it behooves us to be really well-trained before we get serious about it. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is that, you know, what I, what I argue in the book is that the way that you become an ethical psychic is you have to be very vigilant and very self-reflective about whether or not anything you are doing or saying could possibly harm another person. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. that's point number three here, being self-aware. Yeah, and so, you know, being self-aware is about a few different things, knowing what your gifts are, knowing what your limitations are, knowing what your purpose is, because we, we didn't all come to do the same work and we don't all have the same gifts. And we could all take the same class in, uh, you know, say Reiki or medical intuition, but we wouldn't all necessarily be good enough at it to really be of service in the world. And so we have to figure out what is it I'm really meant to be doing? What are my gifts really pushing me in the direction of? Because what happens is sometimes people, they want to become something because it's popular. It's the new thing. Oh, you know, I want to become a psychic detective because that sounds cool. But then they don't really have the proper gifts to, to do that work. And instead of, instead of kind of being self-aware of the fact that, oh, you know, I'm not really that good at this. Maybe I should do something else. They might just go ahead and advertise that they do that work. <laughs> People are coming to you who are, who are dealing with really serious issues like missing children and they're counting on you and you're not really helping them. You may even be harming them. And so not being self-aware of what your limitations are and what your gifts are can end up really hurting your client. And that relates to point number two also, which is being authentic, not pretending to be something that you aren't. Yeah. So being authentic is about being authentic to your, you know, your lineage. What's your cultural background? Are you trying to culturally appropriate someone else's culture and set yourself up as an expert on someone else's culture without being given the proper training and permission because it's popular or because you can make a lot of money doing it or have certain status by calling yourself? a medicine person when you aren't actually trained in that tradition. You see this a lot with ayahuasca, with shamanism, with people calling themselves shamans or trying to lead ayahuasca ceremonies and they weren't actually trained how to do them. That could be very dangerous for a participant because whenever you're working with plant medicine, there's the potential for you to have some out-of-body experiences, some travel to other dimensions and altered states, to have spirits come and communicate with you. And if you don't have a medicine person there keeping you safe during that experience, you can have, first of all, a very bad trip, a bad experience, but you can also have some damage to your aura. 
and you can have some kind of long-lasting impact. Some people even develop mental illness after doing too many bad hallucinogenic trips because they didn't have a medicine person there protecting them, making sure they were properly prepared for the experience, making sure that they were protecting them from whatever spirits showed up. And so you can really harm people by pretending to be a ceremonial leader, but you don't have the gifts. Like if you don't, if you're not a clairvoyant, if you can't see spirit and you're running a ceremony, you're not going to see any bad spirits showing up, creating problems. And so you're not going to be able to protect those people. And you have to not only be able to see spirit, but you have to also know how to remove spirit that's negative. Like you have to have spirit release gifts as well if you're working in a ceremony like that. So yeah, when people are not being authentic, they sometimes pretend to be something they're not. On the ayahuasca point, as you know, ayahuasca and psilocybin and other psychedelics are huge these days, going wild. And and there's, there's some really good serious research taking place at Johns Hopkins. And there's some really good practitioners who seem to be very well-trained and serious about what they do. But what is your sense of the ratio between the numbers of people engaging in these things and the numbers of people qualified to actually serve as shamans or guides? Well, you know, I do think it's changing. I'm seeing that there are these programs being created by therapists where they're creating kind of structured programs where their clients come to them and do microdosing and sometimes macrodosing with psilocybin and, and some of these other derivatives of plant medicine. And they're able to use that to help them with specific mental health issues like depression. And they've done a lot of research showing that it's very helpful with depression and with bipolar and certain suicide, PTSD. There's a lot of ailments that can be helped by working with these medicines. And so I do think that's good. And that's a kind of a new model. That's not a working with a shaman or a ceremonialist. That's working with a therapist. But the therapists are being trained in how to work with the plant medicine. And so I think that's very exciting that we have these kind of hybrid programs coming up, which are combining different traditions. And I feel like that's a responsible way to go about it because these people are actually getting trained to run these sessions. They're not just going into their session room with their clients and saying, let's try some psilocybin this week. I read it's good for your problems. That would be irresponsible. But the people who are actually getting trained, going to these institutes and getting trained how to be a psychotherapist who also works with plant medicine in a responsible way, I just think that's a different way to work. But what I'm concerned about, and what I talk about in the book, is people who are not really being trained by anybody. They're just going down to Peru, having a few experiences, and then coming up here and deciding to recreate those experiences with other people without really any preparation or training. Yeah, or they're just getting some acid or, or psilocybin from the local guy on the corner and doing it with friends, you know, which is what I yeah. did in the 60s. You had no idea what we were doing. And the thing is, sometimes that works out for people. Sometimes it doesn't. (laughs) So um, it's a risk that you take when you basically don't respect the plant medicine. When people treat it like a recreational drug, the way I have been trained, that's disrespectful to the plant to just treat it like it's a drug. In a ceremony, what you're doing is you have certain like rituals and protocols that allow you to show your respect But really, a big part of the ritual is to get your mind in the right frame of mind and to make sure you're ready to do it. 
And so we do things like have everybody sit and play music or sing or chant or, you know, have smoke, Palo Santo or sage burning. And that's because it helps people prepare people to be in the right frame of mind to go into the experience. And then we have people who, with a lot of these plant medicines, if you go to a traditional ceremonialist, they'll have you restrict your diet before you take them. You don't just take it full stomach. You might fast for a period of days or you might uh, have a certain diet. And that's too, to make sure you're not going to have a bad experience. You're not going to be vomiting a lot. You're not going to get sick. They're preparing you. And then they'll have talks with you before you do it. Like, okay, why do you want to have this experience with the plant medicine? What are your issues? What are your problems? What do you want to deal with? And they'll help people go into the experience without a lot of fear. Because if you go into an experience that involves an altered state with fear, that's going to take you to the lower astral realm where you're going to be engaging in all kinds of fear-based illusions. You know, you're going to be caught up in kind of nightmare scenarios. And so you talk to the person first and you find out and you help them prepare. You know, there's just a lot that can go into preparing for a session. If you don't know how to do that, you're going to have people coming to you who are coming to have an experience because they're in crisis in their life. And you're not a therapist. You're not a medicine person. You don't know how to help a person in crisis. But now you have a person in crisis in an altered state. And that's just a recipe for disaster. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, societal implication of all this is if it gets out of control and, there's a, and there are disasters and casualties, then we might end up like we did in the 60s with the whole thing being clamped down again legally. So I, I think a lot of the people who are taking this seriously are hoping that it can be handled in a much more responsible way than it was back then. You know, that people yeah. can be properly trained and certified and that it doesn't become wild, wild west again. Yeah. That actually leads into our point four, learning from mistakes and being humble. That's obviously something that we can all take to heart as human beings, but it, of course, is important also for professional psychics and spiritual teachers, many of whom, I don't know about the psychic realm, but in, in the spiritual teacher realm, I've known a number of them who very seldom would admit to making mistakes, even when their behavior is becoming quite nutty. If someone calls them on it, they will tend to ostracize the person or just not accept critical feedback, which makes them vulnerable to becoming even more nutty, you know, because they don't have any checks and balances. You know, I talk in the book a lot about spiritual teachers and spiritual leaders who, because of a lack of humility, start abusing their gifts and, and abusing other people. But being able to admit that you're wrong is so basic, and yet it's so hard for so many people. And I've seen this even with famous psychics and mediums that you might see on TV or the radio. And sometimes I'll hear them giving readings and they'll be telling somebody, oh, you know, I've got a grandfather here and he was very stern and he wanted you to that. And they'll say, no, my grandfather was not stern. And they'll say, well, what I mean is, you know, and they'll kind of change a little. Then they'll say, you know, and he's telling me that you're very unhappy with your job. And they'll say, well, no, I'm not unhappy with my job. And then the, the psychic will say, well, think about it. I think you are. You're just not aware that you're unhappy. So there's this tendency to just keep kind of pushing, no, I'm right, I'm right, just, you know, you don't, you'll see by and by, when really what should happen is if, if I give someone some information in a session and they say, that's not right, I'm supposed to respond with, oh, okay, I guess I got that wrong, let me tune back in, yeah. or maybe I can say it right, or maybe I misunderstood what I thought I was getting, let me find out why I'm getting it wrong. So the assumption should be, 
that the client is right and I have somehow misinterpreted something. So one of the things I tell my students is you got to remember that the very best psychics in the world are only 80 to 90% accurate. These are the really, really good ones. Most of them are famous. <laughs> and so I tell them, if you're not famous, if you're not doing extremely well with your gift, if everyone isn't telling you that you're 100% accurate, you know, don't assume that you're in this 80 to 90% realm. Assume that you're probably less accurate than that. Maybe you're only 70% accurate. So that means, you know, three out of 10 times you got it wrong. So assume that. And as you're giving information, you say that to your client. You say things like, everything I say is not going to be 100% accurate. And you make these comments as you're, as you're giving people readings and say, you know, most of what I'm giving you should be accurate, but there's going to be some things I get wrong. There just has to be that humility. I think it's hard for people when they go into business and their livelihood is tied to their work, whether they're a healer or a psychic that sometimes they feel like if they admit they're wrong too much, that somehow that's going to damage a reputation or people are going to say, oh, they're not that accurate. But the thing is, your work speaks for itself and you don't have to actually convince people that you're accurate by the things that you say or the way you, the way you talk about your work because the work will convince people. The greatest baseball players only batted in the 300s someplace. You know, <laughs> they didn't get on base most of the time, but they, we consider them great. Yeah. And, you know, with a lot of indigenous and a lot of indigenous traditions, humility is just considered a normal part of being somebody who's very gifted. And yeah. the assumption is that if you're very good at what you do, you won't have to brag or talk about how good you are because everybody else will talk about you. Yeah, that's a good point. I remember Richard Nixon being interviewed by, I think it was David Frost, and and I forget the question David Frost asked, but Nixon's response was, well, if the president does it, it's not illegal. It kind of reminds me of some spiritual teachers who actually do all kinds of stuff, you know, getting involved with sleeping with women around them and and so on and so forth, and, and then excuse it by saying, well, I'm not the doer, or it's God doing it, or something like that, which could be used as an alibi for doing virtually anything. I imagine there have been some psychics who've been like that too. Yeah, and I talk about those spiritual teachers in the book because part of the goal of the book is to help psychics and healers and spiritual teachers not become unethical and kind of be aware of how to avoid some of these unethical paths. But it's also meant as kind of a book of red flags for potential clients and students, what they should be looking for in a psychic and a healer and a spiritual teacher. Um, one of the things you should be looking for is humility. Someone who's excessively arrogant, you know, pride goeth before a fall. Someone who's arrogant is going to make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. You're so sure that you're always right. When you do get something wrong, you're not going to notice it. You're going to insist it was right. And therefore, you're going to be vulnerable to making even more mistakes because you lose the ability to recognize mistakes when you make them. Yeah, yeah. It's a difficult thing for some people to overcome the need to be able to admit that you don't always get things right. Which I guess is to say that if you're a psychic or a spiritual teacher or something like that, I mean, you can't just feign humility. It actually has to be ingrained in your being, you know, in, in your makeup. And I think it can be cultured with the right approach and the right attitude, but I suppose culturing genuine humility should be part of one's training. Right. And there are a lot of spiritual traditions where 
the student is required to engage in certain kind of humbling experiences as a part of their training, right? Where they have to sit a certain way or they have to dress a certain way or they have to use certain terms of respect with their teacher. And, you know, in the West, we don't really like that. We think that's problematic that, oh, you shouldn't have to address your teacher a certain way or or serve them food or do things that are servile that a lot of times in the West, we're like, ah, we don't want to do any of that. But the purpose of it, the original intention of a lot of those practices is to, yeah, teach humility to the student so that when they become a teacher and a leader and they become someone who has a lot of power, they don't use it in an abusive way. Now, of course, we have a lot of people who are trained in those type of programs, like we have monks who become abusive. We have gurus, right, who were trained to be humble by their gurus who then grow up to be abusive gurus. And so it's not a fail-safe technique. But I do think it's important to find some way of impressing upon people when they're first developing that humility is very important. Too bad we don't have a training school like that for politicians. Right. That'd be good. (laughs) Okay. The next point is being sensitive to client needs. Yeah. I think this is a problem for some people because if you're a psychic, you know more than other people and you often know more about people than they know about themselves. And so the temptation, if you find yourself in that situation a lot, is to think, oh, I know better than you what you need to do with your life. (laughs) And that can get you into a situation where you're harming rather than helping. So I work as a medical intuitive. And when people come to me, they'll come to me with a very specific question. Oh, I want you to tell me why my stomach always hurts. I want you to tell me why I have ringing in my ear. And while I'm doing a medical intuition scan, I may pick up other issues in their body, which feel more important than what they have come to me with. If I'm not being sensitive to client needs and I'm being a little bit arrogant as well, I might decide, well, I know better than they do what they need to hear from me and what they need to know about their health. I know better than they do. And so I'm going to say, well, I know you came for your stomach, but actually that's not important. Let's focus on your liver. That's the real issue. But if I had ringing in my ear and I came to you and you picked up that I have cancer, I'd want to know about it. Well, yeah. So So the way that you do it when you're being sensitive to someone's needs is you give them what they want and then you also offer them what you think they need, but you don't replace it. You don't say, well, what you think is important is not important. So we're not going to talk about that. Right. You have to be sensitive to what they need. And also you have to be sensitive to what they're ready to hear. There's a lot of ways to be sensitive to a client. You have to be sensitive to what they want, to how they can hear it, to what they're available to receive, to what kind of language you need to use with them. You have to be sensitive to their cultural background, to their beliefs. You can't just try to ram your own beliefs down their throat because you think that your beliefs are accurate and that they need to know. So someone comes to me and I find out that they have a past life that's informing their health issues, uh, but they don't believe in past lives. I don't just say, no, you have to deal with your past life because this is what's causing your ailment. No, I have to be sensitive to my client's needs. So then I have to say, okay, what can I tell them instead that's going to help them? How can I adjust the information I'm getting and give them something that's going to be valuable to them, right? Because sometimes you can talk about it in a different way. Maybe it doesn't have to be in terms of a past life. You could say, well, there are some underlying emotional issues which are influencing this physical condition. And you could sometimes cover that without going into a past life origin of those emotional issues. So there's just different ways that you can be sensitive to what does your client want? Because like, for example, some clients will come to a medical intuitive and they've had so many bad experiences with so many doctors and healthcare practitioners 
and they've been invalidated and had to deal with so much medical gaslighting and had no one listen to them that when they come, they just want to talk about their condition or about their suffering. And if that's what that person needs, if they need to talk, then we need to listen. I used to get irritated. I remember when I first went into practice, I would get irritated with the talkers because it'd be like, they've paid for an hour. We only have an hour. If they talk for 45 minutes, I don't have time to give them any information. And that's what they're paying me for. And I used to get annoyed. I had to adjust my thinking. I had to realize, okay, that's what I think they're paying for, right? I think they need my information. What they actually need is to talk. And that's what the client needs. And so that's more important than what I think they need. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let them talk. And then I am also going to try to cram as much information as I can into that 15 minutes they give me to share what I got. Maybe then they'll have another session and you can talk more on that one. There's more that we could explore. We, We don't have enough time. And if you want to come back, we could do that. You have to adjust to what the client wants, not just what you think they need. There's a saying in India that when the mangoes are ripe, the branches bend down so that people can easily pick them. So it, it kind of is used to illustrate that the teacher should be able to meet students at their own level and give them what they need appropriate to that level of development. Yes. And that's what it is. But I often see this. I remember I had this one, I might've put mentioned in the book, I had this one colleague who used to do past life regressions and I started sending a bunch of people to them. and these people were coming and complaining to me because they would go to this person and they would sign up to get like a past life regression from him. And then he would decide, well, what you need instead is spirit release. And so I'm going to devote the session to like removing all these spirits from you. And then the clients would be upset that they weren't getting what they signed up for. And when I confronted this practitioner, he said to me, well, they think they need to see a past life, but I know what's best for them. And I'm communicating with their higher self and I'm not listening to them. I'm talking to their higher self. And and we've determined that what they really need is spirit release. (laughs) So there was a couple of problems with that. One is lack of sensitivity to client needs. Another is arrogance, right? I know better than they do what they need. And then the arrogance too of, I know I'm speaking to their higher self. Do you? Do you know you're speaking to their higher self? I mean, do you have evidence that you're speaking to someone's higher self? You might just think you're speaking to someone's higher self and really you're just doing what you want to be doing because you're more interested in spirit release than you are in past life regression right now. So that's what you're going to do. (laughs) So this is something that can happen with practitioners that we can decide, oh, I'm really into this right now. And I think everybody should get this treatment or this modality or this assessment, but that's not what people actually signed up to do. You know, I had some teachers in the spiritualist community who were teaching us spiritual healing. And one of the rules that they had was that when you're doing spiritual healing on somebody, you do not do a reading on them at the same time. So like if you have someone on your table and you're doing spiritual healing or if you're doing Reiki or pranic healing or any other type of energetic healing and you suddenly get messages for them, we were trained not to give the messages. Why? Because they said if a person came to you for healing, you don't know if they're available or interested in messages and you might disrupt their healing experience because they just want to lay on the table and feel the energy. They don't want to talk to you. And so what I had to learn to do was if someone came to me for energy healing, I would say to them before the session started, I'm a medium. And so I sometimes get messages from spirit. Do you want me to give those messages to you? And what I also would do is I wouldn't give it to them during the session because that's disruptive. I would wait till the session was over. We'd be sitting in the chairs and I would say, okay, this is what I picked up while I was doing the energy healing. So that's being sensitive to what the client wants. 
Just because I got a message from their dead mother that she wants them to know something doesn't mean I'm allowed to give that message. Because if they didn't sign up for that, they came for something else. (laughs) Okay, good. And then the final point in that chapter is listening to a higher source. Yeah, for some people, this will be problematic because there are some people now who want to practice their gifts and they don't necessarily want to be concerned with spirituality. And so you don't have to be a spiritual person to be psychic. And I think sometimes people get confused about that. They think if someone's really psychically gifted, they're also conscious. And that's not the case. Part of why I have this book. Conversely, spiritual people aren't necessarily psychic. That's true. Independent. Yeah. But those who are psychic and also spiritual are going to be less likely to harm people because their work is guided by a power beyond them. And that answers that question of humility too. You know, if I think that I am the arbiter of the healing, I might get kind of big headed about it. Like, oh, I'm healing all these people. (laughs) But if I understand that I'm just a hollow bone and that there is energy working through me, that there's a higher source, whether it's your higher self or an angel or an ancestor or creator God, whatever you want to call it. If you understand that there's something above you that actually has the power that's working through you to help people, that's going to keep you humble for one thing, because you're not going to start taking all the credit for it. But also it means that you're less likely to make mistakes, right? Because if I'm just relying upon my little brain and my experiences in this life and my limited number of years on the planet and my limited number of experiences and the amount of training I've had, if I'm just relying on that, that's not enough. But if I'm relying on higher sources, if I have angels coming in and saying, oh, this is what they need, if I have ancestors coming in, if if I have guides coming in and advising me and and counseling me and teaching me, that I'm going to be a much better psychic and healer because I have all these resources. So that's why I say, if you want to be ethical, make sure you are tapping into higher sources of information and healing and not limiting yourself to what your little human incarnation knows. Yeah. and. Isn't it true, and there have been plenty of movies depicting this kind of thing, but that people can have psychic or other such gifts and yet be really in league with darker forces. And I think maybe the same can be true of so-called spiritual teachers who present themselves as holy people, but in fact are behaving in ways that seem very unholy. Yeah, and this is always the danger with uh, mediums, for example. So we have some spiritual leaders who are who are mediumistic. and if you're a medium who is working at a high vibration, then you're going to be tapping into high level beings like spirit doctors, angels who are helping you to heal people. But the same medium, if they lower their vibration, if they start getting involved in a lot of low vibration activities and start hanging out in low vibration environments and develop certain habits, you know, like addictions, those same mediums can start tapping into very low vibration spirits, elementals, or what is the word? Um, now I'm forgetting the word, but there are certain spirits. Like hungry ghosts or that kind of thing? Or... Yeah, you have, yeah, you have the, the unquiet dead, the attached ghosts. I'm forgetting this word, but it's like there are these spirits who are just mischievous. Malevolent, you mischievous. mischievous yeah. ones, you have malevolent ones. There are different levels. Poltergeist, that kind of thing. Yeah, there are immature ones. You have mischievous <laughs> you think it's funny to mess with people, and they might just give you incorrect information and just because it's funny to them. A friend of mine once equipped, um, just because you're dead doesn't mean you're smart. And I think perhaps it's also true that just because you're dead doesn't mean you're good. 
It's true. And so the attached, the spirits who are attached, the spirits who are kind of hanging out, you know, stuck isn't really quite the word because they're, they're never really stuck. They could always leave, but they perceive that they're stuck or more likely they've chosen to stick around. So those unquiet dead who are sticking around, they're usually sticking around because they have some type of addiction. They're addicted to something in the physical plane that they can't give up. Either they, you know, the money, the sex, you know, alcohol, drugs, food. There's something about the physical plane that they just are very, very attached to. And so those people, those ghosts who are very attached to the physical plane, they will mess with people sometimes and try to influence people because they're trying to live vicariously through people. They're trying to still have a human experience on the earth plane and they don't have bodies. And so they try to use other people's bodies. And so they can come down and influence a medium and and give information that's incorrect or that's biased, or that's, like you said, stupid, because they have different motivations. They're not high vibrational beings who are trying to be of service. They're people who are just trying to find a way to still participate in the human drama. Yeah. I have a couple of friends who have been on Bathgap. One of them was a sort of a distance healer kind of a person, and the other, he's just basically a spiritual teacher. But at, at a certain point, they both, independently of one another, felt like they were being assailed by some subtle negative beings. Somehow, whatever they were doing or whatever stage they were at, they had become open in a way that made them vulnerable to attack. And I think they both worked through it eventually, but it was a scary period for both of them. Yeah, it can be scary. I've experienced that. I certainly experienced it as a child. I used to go out of body every night and I was conscious of leaving my body. We all go out of body, but most of us aren't conscious of it. And I was conscious of coming back in the morning and having to fight for my body because there were always these beings trying to take over my body. You know, I've had experiences like that. I've also had experiences where I'm going through something traumatic and then it's affecting my gifts or I'm starting to have nightmares or, you know, I'm starting to have spirits around me. We're all vulnerable to that. If you're a medium, you're a little bit more vulnerable because you're already connected. And it can happen to us for so many different reasons. A lot of times it's associated with trauma, with grief, with illness. Sometimes it's just being in certain environments. I remember I had an apartment once that had these mischievous and um, like interdimensional beings that just kept coming in there and and messing with me. What do they call them? Change. uh, What do they call those? Shapeshifters. Shapeshifters coming into my apartment, which were really scary. And at the time I was doing a lot of conscious out-of-body work. I was, I was reading Robert Monroe's books and doing these conscious out-of-body exercises during the day. And I started seeing these really freaky things. And I did every kind of thing that I knew how to do. I was reading Edith Fiore's script, send them to the light. I was playing Gregorian chants. I was playing all kinds of different high vibration music. I had my girlfriend come and she was also psychic and she was trying to, and she said to me, look, we can't fix this. This is beyond us. You need to move. (laughs) And it was hard for my pride because I had gone to so many people's houses and done house cleaning. So as a kid, you know, here I was like in my twenties in college and grad school, all my friends would say, Oh, come over here and, and clean our house for us, you know, spiritually. And so of course I had a certain amount of arrogance or belief in my ability to do that. And here I couldn't do it in my own house. (laughs) And after several months of trying everything, I did move. And years later, I asked my guides, you know, what happened in that house? Why couldn't I clean that house? Why couldn't I get those, all those spirits out of that house? 
And they said, oh, because there was a portal in that house. It was kind of like a train station. And you would have had to know how to close that portal. Uh, Interesting. I didn't know how to close that portal. So sometimes Mm -hmm. you can find yourself in a situation where there's a vortex or a portal and there's just all of these beings coming into that space. And it's very hard to fight off that many. They should have called Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray. You know? Exactly. I Who are you going to call? <laughs> I thought I was a ghostbuster. I was like, nope, can't handle this. Okay. So our next chapter, the risks of psychic work, which we're kind of touching on here right now. And in fact, yeah. this segues into it nicely because, you know, you just mentioned, you know, um, out of body work with Robert Monroe and all. And then there are a lot of people channeling. Do you think that certain things like channeling or, related things could actually weaken mind-body coordination in such a way as to make a person more vulnerable to the kind of thing we've just been talking about? Well, yeah. In fact, I used to run a psychic and healing fair, and I had a number of um, psychics, mediums, and energy healers that would work for me at this fair. We would do many readings for people. And I did a lot of energy healing back then. And what I was seeing was some of the mediums who were working at my fair were having to come to me periodically to get a spirit release work from me because in their work as mediums, they were getting all of these spirit attachments. So yeah, that is a risk with mediumship that if you are a medium who's working with spirits and you don't really know how to cleanse yourself, you can acquire a lot of hanger, yeah. hangers on. And in some cases, it's something you can prevent with certain changes in your lifestyle. So Some mediums have a problem with too much alcohol. Alcohol and mediumship don't really mix. And there's a reason why we call alcohol spirits, because we used to understand that when you drink alcohol, you do attract spirits to you. There's a lot of alcoholic spirits who are looking for a body to attach to so that they can imbibe vicariously. And so that's why a lot of people who are alcoholics or addicts Um, The reason it's so hard for them to quit is because it's not just them. They're dealing with the cravings of several people that they have to contend with in their body. They're craving and then the craving of all the attachments. And so, you know, mediums have to be really careful about that. When I was a kid, I was aware as a kid that bars were full of spirits. My parents owned a bar and um, I could see all the spirits in the bar gathered around everybody and they weren't like high level spirits, you know, (laughs) they were low level spirits. And so, yeah, there's a risk with mediumship and channeling. If people aren't engaging in certain rituals and ceremonies and uh, self-protection and also aren't really actively trying to keep their life in a high vibration mode, that they can start to attract these lower vibrational beings. We saw that with a really famous healer, in Brazil, who, John of God, yeah, who yeah. was channeling all of these very high-level spirit doctors and helping so many people, but then you can see that later on he started to bring in some very low vibrational beings and started to engage in other activities, and that can happen if you're not careful. You know? That's interesting. I'd never heard that theory about what happened to him. Because obviously he did have a reputation for helping a lot of people and then things really went off the rails. And so that's a perfect example of the question I asked, you know, that you're engaging in a certain practice and it ends up making you vulnerable to being used by 
unethical entities. Yeah. Yes. Many risks. Do you think that many people in mental hospitals, uh, places, people like that, are actually the victims of spirit possession or, you know, things hanging on? I forget the exact phrase you used. I mean, obviously, they might have biochemical imbalances and all kinds of other things, but do you think that that also is a phenomenon? My mother used to be in mental hospitals a lot when I was in my adolescence and tried to commit suicide a few times. Before I learned to meditate, I used to visit her there, or even after I learned to meditate, of course, and I could come in in a very clear state and just sitting with her in there for half an hour, I would feel like my consciousness sort of shrink down and my mind get incoherent and it's like the atmosphere was almost uh, assaulting me. And, and perhaps those who live there all the time are permanently under assault and full of negative stuff. Yeah, I've often suspected that. I don't feel like I have enough information to know if that's always the case. It does certainly seem like it's possible that a lot of mental illness is, is connected to possession or something like that. I know that in a lot of traditions... In a lot of indigenous traditions, there is that belief that when somebody develops a mental illness, that there is possibly some, there's a couple of possibilities. There's spirit attachment, you know, low vibrational beings attached who are influencing the person. Another possibility is that they have soul loss. And so when people have fragmented souls through trauma, like they go through something traumatic or more, more likely several traumatic events. And then in each traumatic event, they kind of lose a piece of their soul. Huh. And then Never heard of that. I don't know a lot about it, so I don't know if I'm using the right language, but it's called, I think, soul fragmentation. And I've done some exercises with people and they have found it useful. So sometimes that can be considered a cause in certain indigenous contexts for mental illness. And then there's also imbalance. Imbalance is considered a cause of, of certain types of mental illness in a lot of indigenous traditions where there's an imbalance in the life. Maybe it's an imbalance between the physical and the spiritual world, an imbalance between the person and their community. Uh, maybe they're in a, um, you know, toxic relationships and that's causing the mental illness. Maybe their body is out of balance. So yeah, the chemical imbalance in the brain could be the result of other imbalances in their life. And so imbalance is considered a cause of mental illness in a lot of indigenous traditions. So I do think that if we could bring in these types of modalities into mental health, if we could bring in medical intuitives, we can bring in spirit release practitioners, if we bring in medicine people and have them work with the therapists or the psychiatrists, that we would have a higher success rate of people actually recovering from yeah. mental illness. Hopefully that'll be the future of it. Yeah, that's and- part of Vision for the yeah. And things turned out well for my mother, by the way. She finally learned to meditate and she went over and stayed in Switzerland with me for nine months uh, in a whole group of people and uh, really lived quite happily the rest of her life. Our next question, actually, our next point is on client dependency. And someone named Gloria in Los Angeles sent in a question about it. Is there any insight about seeing the same psychic for years? I feel I created a bit of a dependency. I go when things are are opaque, turbulent, or ambivalent. But is there a limit of time that is healthy or advisable? Yeah, that's one of the things I talk about in the book is how it's quite dangerous to have your clients become dependent on you. And this is, again, where being focused on service is so important because 
if you have a client who's paying you a nice sum of money and they want to see you all the time and they're helping you to pay your car note, (laughs) it's going to be difficult to say, stop seeing me. But you have to always be asking yourself, you know, am I being of service to this person by letting them call me every week? Am I really helping them? And you have to put aside how it affects your finances because, or how it affects your ego, because of course we feel good. When someone calls us every week, oh, I really need you. You help me so much. I can't live my life without you, right? It stokes our ego. And it's, it's very tempting to be like, yes, they need me. I got to be there for them. <laughs> I've had clients that I had to tell them, I can't see you anymore, or I can't talk to, and I can't talk to you for a month. I had to set limits with people. Because what can happen is people become so dependent on you providing answers for them that they're no longer taking the steps they need to be in charge of their life. So they're calling you for everything. They're not able to make decisions on their own anymore. They have to have your input every time they make a decision in their life. That's not healthy. It's not healthy for them to have that relationship with anybody. They should be making their own decisions. And it's okay to consult a psychic, but that should not be something you need to do in order to make decisions. Like I can't make a decision unless I call my psychic. That's dependency. And so I think it's the job of the psychic to say, you're becoming too dependent on me. I can't keep seeing you. Or I have a limit on how many times you can call me per month. Or, you know, we're the ones that have to set those limits because the person who is calling us is vulnerable. They're going through something. They're not necessarily able to understand that they're getting themselves into a dependent situation, but we are. And so it's our responsibility to set those limits with them. And that's financial and it's emotional. We don't want to financially exploit them. So like if I have a client who's coming to me on a regular basis and they're talking about their money all the time, how they're having all these financial problems, but they're spending $150 to see me every week, (laughs) they obviously can't afford to see me. And so I should not keep taking their money. I should either, either I'm going to be available to offer them a discount session. I'm going to be offering them a free session. Or I'm going to be limiting how many sessions they can book with me. We have power over people. That's one of the things I talk about in the book. This is like it's a starting premise. You have to understand that if you're psychic, if you're psychically gifted, regardless of what your work is, whether you're a healer, some type of clairvoyant, a medium, whether you're working as a a spiritual teacher, whatever your, your role is, if you have gifts and you're using those gifts, you have power over people who don't have gifts. And whenever there's a power differential, The person with more power has to be more responsible. And so we as psychics, we have to always remember that I have more power than this person. So I have to be careful with how I use that power because I can hurt somebody without intending to hurt them just by not being reflective and conscious about how I'm hurting them. This financial thing, I'm glad you brought it up. That's our next point. And it's a biggie in the general space spiritual community too, not just psychics. And there's so many instances where spiritual teachers will, I mean, there was one guy who one of his students divulged that he had gotten a inheritance of about $900,000. And the guy's reaction was, oh my God, it's so good that you told me because there's a suric energy attached to that money. And if you hadn't told me, it would have destroyed you. I can purify it for you. Sign it over to me. And the guy actually did. And last I talked to him, he was legally trying to get it back. But there are so many cases where 
people sign over their life savings or their inheritance or they just spend money they don't have on one course after another and so on. And, and very often from the teacher's side, they have built an empire, you know, they have a lot of overhead and they become reliant upon a certain income stream and they have mortgages to pay and all this stuff. So it becomes a sort of mutual unhealthy interaction. Anyway, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah. You know, we have a lot of confusion about how money and spirituality should work together. We have kind of these extremes. You know, we have some people who say you should never charge for any healing gifts. That's a gift of God. <laughs> yeah, go work at Walmart all day and do your healing in the evening, right? Exactly. Provide it for free forever <laughs> for your whole life. I had this friend who was a medicine man and he was coming to me for some teachings and he was working full-time in this really difficult job, 40 hours a week. And then he was working as a medicine man in the evenings and weekends. And he had become quite sick because he was, you know, he never had time to rest. Burning out. Yeah. Because in a lot of indigenous contexts, you know, you don't pay a medicine person. Some you do, like the Navajo, they have extremely high rates of pay for medicine people. If you want a ceremony put up in the Navajo, you know, it's a high price you have to pay. And then there are other tribes where they're like, oh, we don't pay the medicine man. He just helps everybody. And so this guy was, you know, really running himself ragged, trying to basically work two full-time jobs. And one thing I said to him is, you know, traditionally, medicine people were always supported by the community. So they may not have been given money, but their house, their clothing, their food, and gifts, their transportation, everything was given to them in exchange for their service as a medicine person. We've lost track of that. And so I, I said, you know, talk to your tribe about giving you a salary. And they were able to set him up with a salary and to go back to that more traditional way. A lot of people are kind of confused about that. And they're like, well, you know, traditionally healers weren't paid, so you should just work for free. But traditionally, healers were completely supported. And so what healers have to do now is they have to charge so that they can have house and food and, you know, support themselves. But there's this tension of how much should healers charge? And if they're being of service, shouldn't they have really low rates or be working for free? And we don't have that same expectation of, say, doctors, right? Doctors are paid very, very high rates. And we understand that they've got a lot of training. They're dealing with life and death issues. But a traditional healer who is also dealing with life and death issues and also often goes through a long training period, sometimes are expected to just live in poverty in order to be a healer. And so what I do say in the book is I don't think you should expect to live in poverty in order to be of service. You can be of service and still support yourself. There's no tension between the two. You can charge a, a decent rate so that you can support yourself. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you also shouldn't have 95 Rolls Royces or something. But yeah, but when you get into that, then you have the other extreme. People who are using their gifts to become multimillionaires and they're not paying any attention to how they're impacting the people that they're getting this money from. It's not even a fair exchange. It's not like, oh, you take these 10 classes with me and you'll have these abilities that you'll be able to go and market. No, they're taking money from people. They're not actually providing them with what they're claiming they're providing them. They just want to make a lot of money. And so they're exploiting people financially with their gifts because they can't. Because when you have certain gifts, sometimes you can influence people with your gifts and get them to give you lots of money. 
But just because you can doesn't mean you should. (laughs) People who visit psychics and healers are often very vulnerable, desperate people who are dealing with something. And they're in a position where they will be willing to spend money they don't have because they're so desperate for a solution to their problem. And we can't take advantage of that. We have to be mindful of that when we're thinking about what we're charging for things and who we're charging it. You know, some people do sliding scale. Some people do where they charge for some things and they offer other things for free. You know, I used to have a fair where I had these little mini sessions that were only $20 that anybody could afford, but I was providing the same level of work in those 15 minute sessions as I would provide in an hour session with someone who paid a couple hundred dollars. And that was my way of providing services to people who didn't have the money. I've also done a lot of free sessions for people if they were of a certain income background or situation. So there are ways that you can charge a lot for people who have a lot and charge less for people who have less or volunteer in certain situations. There's ways to do that and still do well financially. But we have to be thinking of, are we taking advantage of somebody's suffering? with our gifts. Sometimes the way you deal with that is you have to be able to say to somebody, well, I can't really help you Um, because sometimes like say someone's dying and they want to keep coming to you for healing sessions, but you've already seen that they're going to pass and that you can't change that outcome, but they want to keep giving you money to do healing sessions. The ethical healer is going to say, I can't help you anymore. I've been told that I've helped you the most that I can, and I can't continue working with you have to find a way to, to let them know to stop spending the money on you. Sure. Your final point in that chapter is making matters worse. And I forget what you actually said in that chapter. What's that one about? What did I say? I don't <laughs> well, we, we can skip it. We can go to a different book one. Was, was, you know, largely, I say largely channeled. Page 58. Um, page 58, making matters worse. Oh, yeah. So I talk about, I've seen this happen with some of my colleagues where They'll do a session with somebody and the person will come out of the session and say, oh, I feel worse now than when I went into the session. I used to sometimes see this happen with the people that worked at my fair. And this sometimes happened with psychics who were all about being brutally honest, no matter what. Hmm. And some people feel that that's just like a value that I'm going to be brutally honest and I'm going to give whatever I get regardless. And I obviously don't agree with that because I think it can be harmful I think that if you're going to be brutally honest, you have to at least maybe also figure out what you need to do to help that person handle your brutal honesty. (laughs) But I used to tell my fair psychics and healers, you know, that we couldn't do the the three D's in a psychic fair. We couldn't tell people that they were going to die, uh, that they had a um, life-threatening disease, or that they were going to get divorced. And some of my psychics were not happy about that. And they said, well, if that's what I get, that's the truth. That's what they should hear. And I would say, well, this is someone you're only going to have in your session for 15 minutes. You may never see this person again in life. And you don't know what they're going to do with that information. If you tell someone off the street, you're going to die, and then they leave, what's going to happen to them? They don't have your number. You don't have a relationship with them to help them navigate that bad news. And so I would tell people, you know, you got to be careful what you say to people in that type of mini reading context. But also, if you have a client that you're seeing in a more structured, formal session where that you have their number and they're in contact with you, you do have to, I think, be mindful of not making matters worse. If somebody is coming to me because they're sick and I see that they have a life-threatening disease, 
I have to ask myself, is telling them they have this disease going to help them or make matters worse? So like as a medical intuitive, I can't legally diagnose. So there's that. But say I can't diagnose what I can kind of imply. You might have this condition. Are they going to get better? Is that information going to help them? Like, is it going to lead them to go get a certain test? Are they going to go see a healthcare practitioner? Are they going to go get a treatment plan? What are they going to do with that information? Is it going to help them? Or is it going to make them worse? Another example is like telling someone that their spouse is cheating on them. That can be very dangerous, especially if you're telling that to a man, they might go and harm their wife, right? There's a lot of violence against women by men who think they're cheating. So that could cause a fatality, right? (laughs) So you have to think about that. Am I going to tell this person that their partner is cheating on them? What are the possible repercussions? Is it going to make matters worse for them? Or would it be better to say something like, there's a disconnect in your relationship, there's some lack of honesty that needs to be addressed, or your partner's not being fulfilled? Like there's other ways to give them the information that might help them to make some decisions that aren't as rash. And so you have to, I think, ask yourself, are you making things worse or are you making them better? And I do think we're responsible for that. I do think that when someone comes to you for a session, that they're expecting you to help them with whatever they're dealing with. They're not expecting to walk out of there feeling worse than when they came. Good. All right. Thank you. Okay. The next chapter looks interesting. Interfering with the will of others. And the first sub point is perverting the will of another. And then the next one we're going to talk about is the misuse of sexual energy and then fake gurus. I think this chapter applies to spiritual teachers as well as psychics. So what would be an example of perverting the will of another? So that's when you're interfering with somebody's life path. Like if they say, I want to marry so-and-so and you say, no, no, you shouldn't marry that person. You should marry this person or something, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it can relate to living people and it can also relate to spirits. We can interfere with somebody's life on the other side as well. So I give some examples of people who like do curses. That's an example of perverting the will of another. You are engaging in certain types of magic where you're trying to control another person. Sticking pins in the little doll, that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's different ways to do it. So we do unfortunately have this very negative media portrayal of voodoo as this black magic or negative practice, which it's not. Voodoo is a religion that's tied to African religions in in West Africa. And then we have hoodoo, which is a form of African-American magic, but it's not necessarily a bad tradition, right? There's always going to be practitioners who use it in a bad way, but it's not about harming people. But any magical tradition, whether it's uh, Bruharia or hoodoo or um, paganism, any kind of uh, witchcraft, any kind of magical tradition can be perverted. It can be used to control people. So if you're using your gifts that way, that's what I call perverting the will of another. So like I'm going to do a ceremony, I'm going to do a spell, I'm going to do a curse to change your behavior. I want you to love me. So I'm going to do a love spell on you and make you love me. I want you to hire me for this job, so I'm going to do a spell to make you hire me. I'm perverting your will. I'm controlling you. And that can actually be done. It can actually be done by people who are powerful. I did it, you know, when I was young, kind of by accident. I mean, I I didn't really know what I was doing, and I learned my lesson. But I did that when I was in my 20s. I put a love spell on somebody, and that person became obsessed with me. So obsessed that 10 years later, they like 
found me in another city in the other part of the country. And I didn't know at the time that I was doing it. I was young. I was silly. I was egotistical. I just wanted this person to like me. So I did this little love spell. And because I am somebody who has serious gifts, it was a powerful spell. And I learned from that. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> but a lot of people don't get that lesson and they, they play around. I've had a number of clients come to me with different conditions, health conditions and problems. And I will trace it back to a spell that they cast when they were younger, which got them involved with some low level spirits and some low level practices. Anytime you're trying to control another person, that's unethical. We don't have the right to change people's life paths to suit our desires just because we have the gift and ability to do it. So that's something that I think people with gifts have to be very mindful of. And you do see this with these kind of corrupt spiritual leaders is that they will be using their gifts to control their students or their, their community members because they do have that ability. And it's not right because we all have a life path. We all came here with our own life path. And it's not for someone else to decide, oh, I want you to fall in love with me, or I want you to hire me, or I want you to sell me your house. I want, you know, it's not for us to control other people just because we have gifts. Yeah. And it's interesting because, I mean, the same thing happens in larger social contexts, such as certain politicians who can whip a crowd into a frenzy or certain media outlets, which, you know, feed misinformation that confuses millions of people. If you ever saw The Social Contract, which is this documentary about Facebook and social media and how their algorithms and YouTube and take you deeper and deeper down a certain rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and so on. So these are all examples of the will of others being controlled either by technologies or by demagogues. Well, yeah, you know what I saw when I started doing a whole lot of readings back when I was in my kind of apprenticeship program and I was working for other people doing lots of psychic readings and like card readings. And so I worked with all these strangers. What I learned was that there are certain people who have very large, very magnetic auras, and they're able to influence people in a much bigger way than, than the average person. And those people will become stars. Like we call them stars because we know this on some level subconsciously, we know that the people who become celebrities or stars they have really big star-like auras. Like Taylor Swift. She's yeah. huge these days. When they talk or when they say things or promote things, it has a big impact because they do have that power over people. And same with politicians. People who enter into leadership roles are often souls who incarnated already with these really big magnetic auras, which allows them to influence a lot of people. And, and that can be used for good, but it can also be used to control people or to harm people. Yeah. I mean, Jesus is an example of someone who had a profound impact on large numbers of people whom he encountered and obviously an ex a very good influence. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, no, it's a very And he wasn't perverting anybody's will either, I would say. He was inspiring people. Right. And that's why we're given those gifts. We're given those gifts to help and to serve and to be of benefit. But we can always pervert them, right? We can always misuse them. You know, yeah. The challenge and you know there's all these traditions we have you know hoodoo and bruharia and witchcraft which are all traditions where people can use gifts to help people and there are all traditions that are that have ethics but there are people who want to get involved in those traditions without proper training 
who are really dabbling. They don't know what hoodoo is. They don't know what witchcraft is. They're not really properly trained, but they think they're doing something that they're calling witchcraft or Bulgaria or hoodoo. But what are they doing? They're extracting practices out of the tradition. And when they do that, they're practicing without the ethics. And all of those traditions have an ethics to them. You're not supposed to practice those things without an ethics. But we have dabblers. We have people who are like, I'm going to go watch a YouTube channel or I'm going to go read a book and call myself a witch and start doing love spells. I mean, I'm going to call myself a hoodooist, even though no one's ever trained me. (laughs) And I'm going to just try to do spells on people to control my world. And so you have people who they're trying to control other people. And again, desperation. So people who are desperate or who are unhappy, their life isn't going the way they want it. They'll start engaging in practices, what I call filthy magic, where they're trying to use their gifts or certain rituals to control other people because they're trying to control their life by controlling other people. It's always the case that they're coming at it from a low vibration of desperation or sadness or feeling that life is unfair and I'm going to fix it. And that's not how the gifts are meant to be used. And that's not how the traditions are meant to be used. They're meant to be used for service. The next one is a biggie, which is the misuse of sexual energy. That's usually the most common way in which spiritual teachers go astray. And uh, I, I imagine it's also an issue in, in the psychic world. Perhaps we can talk about it generally for a minute. It's a problem. So I outlined, I'm going to just read from the book right here, 75. There are four ways that psychics and healers can misuse sexual energy. One, as healers, they can simulate the lower chakras during a healing session. So I've seen that happen where I've had students in a healing class doing a healing on somebody. And then the person on the table, if it's a man, will suddenly get aroused as a direct result of the healing energy, right? Number two, they can use their large auras to attract others and provoke crushes. So those of us who do have big auras, big magnetic auras, when we're around other people, a lot of people will find themselves attracted to us really out of proportion to how attractive we really are. (laughs) And so we'll see that, right? You'll see people in positions of power. You often see this with men who are in positions of power in our society. They're not very attractive people, but they have all of these women or they have like very young women or very attractive women who are interested in them. Harvey Weinstein comes to mind. (laughs) Right. It's like, you know, it's not them. They're not actually attractive, (laughs) but they have attractive energy. They have this ability to attract with their auras. And so if you're a healer or a psychic, you will find, I have found this, that a lot of people will have crushes on you. And it's not because of you. It's because of your healing or psychic ability, your large aura. Number three, They could use their gifts to subvert the will of others and get them to return affection. So we were just talking about that example of putting a love spell on somebody to get them to like you. And then four, they can seduce people on the astral plane during dreams or meditations. And this can lead to seduction on the physical plane. So this you're going to see more with the spiritual teachers and the gurus, people who know how to consciously go out of body or to actually interact with people on other planes of existence, different astral planes, the mental plane, the different causal planes, right? There's different planes of existence that we travel to when we go out of body. A spiritual teacher who has perfected their ability to consciously travel out of body can go out of body and influence their clients or students 
out of body. And then that can result in them having a sexual affair in the physical because they'll go into the astral realm, like say during the student's meditation, the student will have this mystical experience with their spiritual teacher in another realm where they're married spiritually and they'll think it has huge significance and then they'll consent to a physical interaction with them on the earth plane because they think it's meant to be or God ordained. And it was just the result of an experience that was provoked by their spiritual teacher who, because of higher gifts and awareness, is able to do this work. Good. Let me take a little shift uh, because a few questions have come in. I want to make sure we get to them and then we'll get back to our systematic points. Dennis Sullivan from Beaverton, Ontario, Canada, wanted to follow up on your point about the comment that hospitals continue to have spirits until they start doing ceremony. And he asked if you could elaborate on the type of ceremony hospitals would need to have to get rid of those spirits. There's a couple of things that could be done. One could be on honoring. A lot of traditions throughout the world have ceremonies to honor the dead. And we don't just do that for the living. And that's part of why we do it, right? We're grief stricken. We need ceremonies to help us deal with our grief. But we actually also do it for those spirits. And I have talked to a lot of spirits after they've passed. And I have consistently been told that they benefit by the memorials that we create for them. If they're remembered, whether it's through a ceremony or a plaque or a scholarship or a book or whatever, it benefits them because we're all as souls coming to earth, hoping to make a positive difference on the earth plane. And any evidence that we've made a positive difference in anyone's life is going to be well-received on the other side. They're Maybe always very- we'll, we'll get kind of brownie points for it or something. But it's like brownie points that we give ourselves. It's not so much that anybody is you know, judging us or telling things up. That's not the case. But it's like our awareness on the other side is, oh, I went to earth. And we have this, you know, the, the life review, right? People have always talked about the life review. Like I, the life review is real. I've seen many, many life reviews. And what happens is the spirit goes over there, they do a life review. And in the life review, they see everything they've done and said throughout their whole life and how it's influenced other people. And they don't just see how it's influenced other people. They feel it. And I think that's what some people misinterpret as hell. If you were someone who harmed a lot of people, And then in your life review, you had to experience all of the harm that everybody felt at your hands. If you were a really bad person, that's going to be a pretty awful experience for you. And so I can see how that could be misinterpreted that way. But basically, when you pass, that becomes what's most important to you is how did I impact who? And when people on the earth plane make a point of acknowledging your positive impact on them, spiritually appreciate that. So one thing is honoring the dead. That could be done. Like when people die in a hospital, they can have the nurses and doctors engage in some type of honoring ceremony, acknowledging that they were grateful to those spirits for having come in the hospital and given those doctors a chance to practice medicine for having taught them something. Yeah. When my mother died, we asked the nurses if we could do a Sanskrit puja in her room before they had to take the body away. And all the nurses said, fine, no problem. Close the door, light the incense, do the ceremony. So you could actually arrange that kind of thing. And and in some hospitals, they'll cooperate with it. Yeah, and it's beneficial for the doctors and nurses to witness that Mm -hmm. as well. And for the other patients and for the other family members, it's beneficial for everybody. But also a ceremony to help the spirit to move 
to the other side would be helpful because some spirits do get caught and get caught up in sticking around. And so there could be some spirit release ceremonies as well. Let's say the person asking the question wants something just quick that they can do. I would refer them to that Edith Fiore book where there's this lovely script at the back where you talk the spirit into walking to the light and meeting with their guides or their ancestors. I think it would be great if every time someone passed in a hospital, somebody read a script like that. It doesn't have to be that exact, but something similar where you say, okay, now, you know, you're no longer a part of the physical realm. Please look around and see who's there to greet you. Be aware that you're loved, that you're greeted and, you know, allow them to take you to the other side where you'll be well-received. I guess we kind of have that where the priest comes in and does last rites and all that, but perhaps it could be more potent and more elaborate and more effective. Yeah. And for different traditions, not just the Catholic. Right, right. So, yeah. And that's something that I have done when I, in my spirit relief. I used to do a lot of spirit release work and I didn't intend to do it. That's true of many of my gifts. It, the gifts just keep showing up and then I keep being directed by my guides to practice certain things. And so there was a time in my life when I was doing a lot of energy healing And I started getting a lot of clients with spirit attachments that were causing them problems in their life. So I had different angels come in and started showing me how to assist these spirits in releasing. And this is the kind of things they told me to say is, you know, help them to see that the other side is waiting for them, that there's people there waiting for them, that there's love there, you know, all of their needs will be met, that the questions will be answered, help them to just move in that direction. And for most spirits, that's all they really need is a little bit of assistance because people die in confused states. They die in angry states. They die in shocking states. And the people who end up sticking around are often people who are very confused about why they died or how they died. And they just need a little help. And so, yeah, that could be a a regular part of people dying in the hospital is a little bit of spirit release guidance and then some honoring of their passing. And then there could be regular sweeps, like having spiritual leaders come in on a regular basis who are clairvoyants, having mediums come into the hospital on a regular basis and assess, okay, are there spirits in this room? Let's cleanse this room. Like spiritual janitors or something. That's exactly what we need. You made an interesting point, which in your book, which this one reminds me of, which is that we can distract or interfere with the work of deceased loved ones if we constantly call them to earth, you know, to communicate with us. They feel obligated to come, but it takes them away from other things that they're supposed to be doing on the other side. Yeah. So I learned that just from experience working with a lot of spirits because I'm also a medium and I used to do mediumship sessions and people would come to me. And they would, oh, I want to talk to Uncle Joe. I want to talk to Grandma. And sometimes they would want to come to me and keep speaking to that person. I had this one person I remember whose very good friend died. And he, he died very suddenly and in a shocking way. And she was very grief stricken. And she came to see me several times to talk to him. And I was allowed to keep calling him down because it was helping him as well. Like his teacher was saying, oh, it's good for him to come and help her and and help process his death. But then at a certain point, when I went to call him, he said, oh, you know, I'm in class right now. And he was in spirit class and he had to ask his teacher permission to come talk to me. And she said, yes, it's okay. 
But I had a lot of experiences like that where sometimes the spirit was in spirit class. Sometimes they were already engaged in a job over there and I was interrupting you know, that work. Sometimes they were uh, supposed to be doing their life review, but they kept postponing it because they wanted to talk to the people down here. And so over time, I started limiting my mediumship sessions to only working with certain types of death. I only worked with traumatic death. And that was because with traumatic death, the spirit who's died usually benefits from having an ongoing conversation with the living. It helps them to process their death and helps them to heal. And because my life path is about healing, I can't do mediumship unless it's healing for all the parties involved. And what I learned from that is that, you know, you can interfere with a spirit's path if you're keeping them too caught up in what's going on down here and addressing the grief of their loved ones when maybe they should be addressing some other things over there. The book is written for every type of psychic and healer. So this, this whole section that I talk about, this is about, is for the mediums. Being and as I said, many of the points apply completely outside the psychic and healer realm to other spiritual teachers. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of feedback like that from people who've read the book, that it applies to therapists, it applies to... It really yeah. does. I mean, a lot of these points you make are universal and uh, yeah. could even apply to doctors and you know, people like that. Yeah. Here's a question from Karen Palazzini in Mobile, Alabama. When I first began to understand that there was something beyond the ordinary conception of being a human, strange phenomena started to occur, including other beings waking me in the middle of the night to communicate. After a few meetings, I asked that they not return, and they did not. I found meditation and have been on a path for two decades. Might these beings try to contact me again? It depends on what level the beings were on. Like once you start meditating and adjusting your life to a higher vibration, you're going to attract a different level of being. And the lower level beings won't really be able to contact you at that point if you're vibrating at that higher level, but you may attract other beings. And so you'll find, I certainly have found throughout my life that I've attracted different levels of beings throughout my life, depending upon what work I was doing in my own spiritual development. And so, yeah, you may still attract beings to you. And there, you know, there's different kinds. Like when I was a kid, I always had beings that would come and get me when I was really young, I had these beings that would come to me at night and they would wake me up and they would pull me out of my body. And they were benevolent beings. They were my teachers actually trying to take me to spirit school. As I got older, I didn't need them to pull me out of my body. I developed the ability to just leave my body. And so sometimes you have beings like that who are trying to help you in your spiritual journey. They're trying to assist you in leaving your body or they're trying to teach you something. But then you can also have those lower level beings that I had when I was younger too, that were, were trying to kind of get in my body, like possess my body because they wanted to live on the earth plane and they didn't have bodies. And those were lower level beings that were a result of a lot of the trauma I was experiencing as a child, which made me vulnerable. So whenever you're going through grief or trauma or illness, you can develop holes in your aura or rents in your aura, which can make you more vulnerable to attachments by beings that are not necessarily helpful. There's a verse in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali that even very advanced yogis can go through a phase where they are tempted by celestial beings and they're, they're being offered various 
divine experiences, but it could actually be a, a trap or it could throw you off. And you're supposed to just say, no, thanks. Thank you very much. I'm moving on. Some people say that the more high level spiritual work you do, the more you will attract these low level beings. So you're, you're probably familiar with the term walk-ins. I'm sure you are. I remember hearing some guy speak who claimed that Albert Einstein was a walk-in and he was now embodying the spirit of Einstein. I don't know if he could have explained Einstein's general theory of relativity. But anyway, there's a guy named Cedric Orange here from California who asks, what is your opinion about walk-ins? Do they actually exist? And how would we know if a walk-in is attached to us? I don't know if I can answer that question. I have had a couple people I've met who I remember doing some readings on some people and I was told that they were two souls occupying one body. And I remember thinking, is that what people mean by a walk-in? Here's one and way I, I've heard it explained. Let's say someone dies. I know what it is. Yeah, I mean, the I, moment I, they die, somebody else comes in and takes over and continues on with that body and the other soul has left. Yeah, I mean, I've read a lot about them, how people make agreements with other souls that they're going to leave and let someone else take over and finish their incarnation. So I have definitely read about that, but I have only a couple of times encountered people who who said that they were that. I don't know if I have enough evidence because I'm a psychic, but I have a scientific background and I like evidence. So I was trained in evidential mediumship as a medical intuitive. It's all about evidence, right? If I tell Mm -hmm. someone something, they need to get a test and prove it. And so if I don't have enough data, then I'm I'm not sure. And I feel like I haven't encountered enough people who were walk-ins for me to know. If, I guess I just don't know enough about it. Well, that's great. That's a very ethical, psychic kind of answer because you're saying, I don't know, which is a wonderful thing to say if you don't know. Yeah, I don't think I know. I don't think I know enough about that. People should say that more often when they don't know something. You know, I found out when I was doing my PhD we had to go through something called your orals, your oral examination, when you have to sit in a room with all these professors for hours and they can ask you any question and they test how much you know. And I remember that one of the things I learned from that, I think maybe one of my professors explained to me at some point, is that what they're looking for is not just how much you know, but they're looking for whether or not you know the limits of your knowledge. And so as a scholar, when you're giving a paper or when you're in a situation like that, there's a certain point at which you should be able to say, I don't know the answer to that. That's great. <laughs> Some say the, the more we know, the more we realize how little we know. Yes, that if was we're, If we're honest about it. Socrates, was it? Okay, so we have basically one more chapter in the book. And maybe I'll just read all the points in the chapter, and then you can kind of comment on them as a whole. The final chapter is similar to the title of the book. It's How to Become an Ethical Psychic. And again, I think this applies to people in other fields of spiritual endeavor or even worldly endeavor. I'll just read all the points. Choose teachers carefully. Choose colleagues carefully. Examine your motives. Do the emotional work. Dedicate yourself to becoming a hollow bone. You'll define that. And live a balanced life. Yeah, so... The the choosing teachers carefully suggestion is also based on the premise that you are going to have teachers. (laughs) So some people think, oh, I was born with these gifts. I don't need teachers. That person's probably going to harm somebody. I was born with gifts. I was born with a lot of gifts. Doesn't mean that I was qualified to counsel people just because I had gifts. I had to learn how to do that. I had to watch teachers help people. I had to 
learn how to control my gifts. I had to get to the point where my gifts were on call, you know? So a lot of us with gifts, we're not always accessing them. We have periods of time where our gifts are dormant. We have periods of time when we're extremely accurate. You have to train with a teacher to learn how to control your gifts so that they are on board as needed in a consistent and reliable fashion. So like if someone books a session with me and they get there, I can't just be like, oh, I'm having an off day. This person needs the answers. They're sick. It's important. I have to have the gifts on call, on demand and evidential. And that requires training. So that's the first thing is that people have to commit themselves to getting training, as much training as they can in how to control their gifts and how to use them to be of service. But we have to be careful who we get trained by. And nowadays, you can get trained by almost anybody. You can go on YouTube and get trained. You can read books and get trained. That's why I wrote the book. So people get you know, trained on ethics by reading the book. You could sign up for a weekend workshop. There are a lot of teachers out there, and not all of them are ethical. And not all of them know what they say they know. And so it's important to choose teachers carefully. And you know, one of the things I look for is humility. You also want to look for their reputation, like what do other people say about them rather than what they say about themselves. One thing I've noticed is that a lot of uh, practitioners will have websites and they'll have all of these reviews on their website that all their clients have said how wonderful they are. But then there won't be any independent reviews like Google or Yelp. People can put a review on there. And uh, as a practitioner, you don't really have control of what people put on there. And so if the person has no independent reviews, you know, I'd be a little suspicious. Why don't they? So you want to really look at the effects of that teacher too. What do their students look like or act like? You know, are their students good people? That's Um, a good point, boy, because students are very often a reflection of the teacher. Right. And as teachers, we have to take responsibility for them. I used to joke, I used to be a professor of philosophy and I used to joke with my students. I used to say, if you go out in the world and be an ax murderer, I'm not going to want anyone to know I was your teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. But if you go out in the world and do great things, I'm going to be claiming you. (laughs) I'm going to say, that's my student. (laughs) But the reality is, regardless of what you go out in the world and do, there is some way in which I'm responsible as your teacher. And so you want to look at, you know, what do their students look like? Their students, what are they doing in the world? That's what you're going to get out of their teachings. So that's very important that you that you have teachers and that you also choose them and carefully. Yeah. The next one was colleagues, of course. So many traditions say that the company you keep is extremely important, especially if you're on a spiritual path. Yeah, I learned that the hard way. And that was part of the motivation for the book is I asked somebody who was going through my apprenticeship and, and learning how to run a practice and see clients. I ended up working with a lot of different colleagues, business associates. And I saw a lot of things (laughs) and I learned from those experiences what not to do sometimes. And what I realized too, in those experiences that is that I couldn't just separate myself from that and say, oh, well, I'm an ethical psychic and maybe my business partner isn't, but I'm not responsible for that person. (laughs) Um, I had to, I had to think about, well, what, what is it saying about my practice if I'm working with this person? Doesn't that reflect on me? Isn't it making it look like I implicitly endorse that person if I'm working with them? And so I think we do have to think about those things. Like if you're making money working at a a facility that's unethical, 
you know, I did that at one point. I was working for this metaphysical store and I found out that they were putting charms in their candles to make people come back and buy more. And I found out a lot of things that they were doing. And this was my sole source of income. And it was a struggle to walk away. And I had that experience again and again with different business partners or places I was working where they were doing some things that were unethical. And I kept trying to convince myself that I wasn't responsible for their bad behavior because I was an ethical healer. But then my students who were coming to me, they were either buying products from those people or going to see those people as clients because of my implicit endorsement. They considered that person that since I was somebody who had strong values, that I would not be associated with somebody who didn't. And so in that way, then I was responsible because then they were going and interacting with my colleagues and possibly getting harmed. And I couldn't really absolve myself of my responsibility. So that's one aspect of it is that you may be then indirectly harming somebody by endorsing somebody who's unethical. But also if you just keep company, like you said, keep company with those people, they're going to influence you. Like you mentioned in, you know, alcoholics can be possessed by or haunted by negative spirits. I mean, if you hang out in a bar and that's the atmosphere that you expose yourself to, even if you didn't talk to anybody and just sat in the corner, you're going to be influenced by that atmosphere. You are. And, you know, I do tell people that you have to choose your environments carefully, your friends. You know, if you're doing this work, yeah, if you're around people who are addicted to a lot of substances, if you're around people who are very angry, who are verbally abusive, if you're around people who are hanging out in bars, where a lot of those people are, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's going to negatively influence your, your energy and make you more vulnerable. But also, like, if you're hanging out with colleagues who are engaging in financially dependent relationships with their clients they might start kind of talking you into thinking it's okay. Well, you're not responsible for how people spend their money. You can't be worried about that. It's going to influence you. If those are the people you're hanging out with, those are your colleagues, and you're all kind of comparing notes on your practice, that might influence you to start doing things that you really know better than to do because, oh, they're not doing it, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Examining your motives. That's a good one. We may have covered this to some extent. You know, what drives you? Why are you doing this to to begin with? Why are you doing this work? That's important. Yeah. And then doing the emotional work. I think this is an important one. I don't know if you've heard of Ken Wilber, but he's this philosopher. And one of his models is lines of development. Emotions would be one line. Intellect would be a line. Consciousness would be a line. Various different facets of our personality. And they can be quite uncorrelated with one another. You know, one could be quite advanced along certain lines and really stunted in other lines. And I think a lot of problems arise when teachers have, you know, are stunted in certain ways, particularly emotionally, and that plays out in their behavior as teachers or, I imagine, psychics. Yeah, you know, because a person can be psychically gifted and emotionally immature, and they they don't go together necessarily. A person can even be spiritually advanced, a spiritually advanced soul who's had many lifetimes, but they can be emotionally stunted in this lifetime. So people have to do the emotional work. And so actually in the section on self-awareness, that's one of the things I talk about is you have to be aware of what your emotions are and where you're coming from so that it doesn't 
influence how you interact with people and you don't project your own issues onto other people. I teach my medical intuitive students to do emotional inventories. Before you sit down with a client, you have to learn how to do an emotional inventory where you're able to kind of take stock of what are your feelings? What have you been feeling over the last 24 years? What is the range of emotions you've been going through? And to just get in the practice of being aware at all times of what your emotions are. And this is just good for everybody in general is to just become aware of what your emotional issues are. What are you going through? What are you feeling and why? And this is something you can learn from working with a therapist long-term. You can also learn it by working with, you know, sometimes with ministers or spiritual leaders or working in groups or reading a lot of self-help books. Some people do that, do it that way, but just becoming aware of your emotions is super important for any type of spiritual, psychic, or healing work. Because if you're not aware of your emotions, your emotions are going to interfere with your ability to help somebody. So for example, if you have had a really uh, difficult relationship with, let's say, a stepfather, and every time you see someone who looks like your stepfather, it triggers you. (laughs) A client comes to see you and they look like your stepfather or they sound like your stepfather, and you haven't process any of those emotions you had about your stepfather, you may be giving them bad advice or projecting things onto them and misreading who they are because you have this emotional work you haven't done. I've seen this a lot. This also is related to biases and prejudices. Some of the biggest obstacles to psychic development that I've seen when I was a student in psychic classes with other students or people's unresolved emotional issues, and then people's biases and prejudices. And so what what happens, they sit down and do a practice reading with somebody, and they're bringing all this stuff, either their unresolved issues that are being triggered by this reading, or their biases about people who look like you, or has your gender, or your sounds like you, and then they're making assumptions. And I saw this time and again, when I was a student myself, where we were doing practice readings, And I would see students giving readings that were just completely inaccurate because they were not readings of the client. They were just readings of that person's emotional state or their past or their past traumas or their biases and prejudices. And so if a a psychic doesn't deal with that stuff, it's going to seriously interfere with with their accuracy. But also they're going to potentially project it onto the client you know, inaccuracy is harmful in itself when you tell someone something that's wrong and they then go run with it. That's harmful. But you can also tell someone something that's, that's inaccurate, that's also insulting or that's negative about them, that's not accurate because you are projecting something onto them. It also make you not compassionate. If you're dealing with your own unresolved emotions, I saw this in the class I just finished teaching. So I teach Indigenous medical intuition for the SHIFT network. And then I just recently taught an advanced Indigenous medical intuition course And in that class, I had a lot of practitioners, people who already are in practice as some type of healer, and they're they're just trying to kind of deepen their practice by learning the modality I teach. I saw a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but there was a handful of people, enough that I was concerned, (laughs) of healers who were very judgmental of clients who they saw as, what did they call it? People with a secondary gain to being sick. And I I don't understand. What does that mean? I find it to be a really offensive way of talking about it. But when you think someone has got a psychosomatic illness or you think that they're sick because 
they're benefiting somehow from being sick. Like they're hypochondriac or they're right. just so, want to melt it for attention and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So the way that people talk about it now is they say there's a secondary gain. Like I see. They're all versions of the same thing. You're psychosomatic, you're hysterical, you're a hypochondriac, you just want attention. You're getting something out of it. Regardless of what you call it, what I saw with some people is a real judgment and lack of compassion. And I see that as a lack of the person having done their own emotional work, that when they see somebody who they think is complaining too much or who maybe their illness isn't really physical, maybe there's some other cause or maybe they're not really sick, but they have some emotional needs that are not being met. And the way that they're meeting those needs is through their illness. That instead of seeing this as somebody who needs help, regardless of what kind of help they need, they need help, right? And this is our job as healers to help. They're sitting in a place of judgment saying, oh, that person's not really sick. They're just getting a secondary gain from pretending to be sick. And that's very presumptuous because they may be sick. How would they know? Right. So there's the, yeah, there's the arrogant presumption that you know that you're such a good healer or such a good medical intuitive that you know for sure, because you never know for sure, right? right? As a medical intuitive, you scan somebody. And like I said, 80 to 90% accurate if you're really, really good. So you may not know for sure what's wrong with them. So there's that arrogance. But then also there's that judgment of something's wrong with this person, that they're pretending to be sick or that they're exaggerating their illness. And so there's that judgment that comes from somebody not having done their own emotional work, the need to sit in judgment of people, the need to put people down or make them less than you. That's always about some type of emotional issue we haven't dealt with in ourselves, some insecurity or Maybe we've been judged in the past, and so then we have the need to judge people. There's different reasons for it. But when you're not dealing with your own emotions, it can make you a less compassionate healer. And it can also cause you to project and to get triggered and to be inaccurate. There's just a lot of that can come from not having dealt with your emotional health. Yeah, good. Two more points. Dedicate yourself to becoming a hollow bone. Okay, so the term hollow bone is from Fool's Crow, a Lakota medicine man. And there was a couple of books. You know, Cynthia Lane, she's an old friend of mine. I think she studied with him too. But anyway, go ahead. She's been on Bat Gap a couple of times. Okay. So yeah, he was a medicine man and some books were written with him and about him. And so that's where I learned about the idea of a hollow bone. And you do find something similar in a lot of different Native traditions. And I've been trained in some Native American traditions because that's part of my heritage and part of my training. And one of the things that I was taught by actually a number of teachers, although not always using that term, was that we are just vessels. So like my teachers in Jamaica taught me this, my teachers in Trinidad taught me this, that when you are a healer, you are merely a vessel for the higher power energy that's working through the healing energy. If, you know, In Reiki, we call it ki or chi. In pranic healer, we call it prana. But in lots of traditions, you have a name for this, but it's, it's always, you know, in acupuncture, they call it chi, I think, right? I think so. It's always this idea that energy flows through us and the healer is helping to channel energy through the body. That's what the fool's pro was talking about when we talked about the hollow bone. He said, as medicine people, we are simply hollow bones. And so your only job as a healer you're not the source of the healing. You're the vehicle through which the healing occurs. Your only job as a hollow bone is to keep your bone clean. And so what do we do to keep our bone clean? We get out of the way. We get out of the way. 
we're trying to keep ourselves pure. We're trying to keep our vibration high. We're trying to engage in a lifestyle that keeps us at a high level vibrating. We're trying to get deal with our emotional stuff, get that out of the way. We're trying to get ourselves, our ego out of the way. When we get all that stuff out of the way, we become a hollow bone. We can then channel the healing energy or the healing messages, wisdom directly to the client or the student. And so this is how you become an ethical psychic is you always think of yourself as a hollow bone. And how can I stay and, and become a, a kind of very clean hollow bone? I think almost everything we talked about today pertains to that because unethical behavior clogs up the bone, so to speak, and you need to purify or hollow out the bone in order to be ethical and not have all kinds of your own inner tangles interfere with the transmission of that higher energy. Yeah, it's so important. Okay, and finally, live a balanced life. I I hope that includes exercise. I, I see too many people that are sedentary and, uh, you know, like to meditate a lot, which I do, but I feel like all aspects of life should be taken care of. And that includes physical health and that includes exercise. Yeah. A lot of people are in balance and they can be in the other direction too. So like in the U S we think yoga is a form of exercise <laughs> right? and we're so uh, misguided about yoga because yoga involves exercise. It also involves meditation. It also involves psychic gift development. It also involves philosophical conversation, right? There's many different forms of yoga, but some people get caught up in only, like you're saying, only meditating, only doing that practice, that yoga. Some people are only doing the stretching <laughs> the exercises and we need balance. In the Native American tradition, which I've been trained, balance is the key to everything, especially to health, but also to practice, to being a teacher, to being a healer, to being of service. You know, we have to have our intellectual world, our physical world, our spiritual world in balance. Hey, you know, it says that in the Bhagavad Gita too. Krishna says to Arjuna, this yoga is not for him who sleeps too much or too little, eats too much or too little, is too active or too sedentary. And of course, I think Buddha and the middle way were all about balance also. Yeah, and also I mean, Buddha went to extremes before he kind of brought it back into a, a more balanced lifestyle. Yeah, also Confucius in Chinese philosophy mm -hmm. talks about the balance. Also in African philosophy, Akan philosophy, there's also a big focus on the wise person is living in balance. In terms of working as a psychic or a healer, what I'm talking about is also having a balanced life in terms of your relationships. What we see with these fake gurus, fake shamans who are abusing people with their gifts is that they often have imbalance. And so there's a temptation. I can see the temptation. I know what it's like to be a teacher and to have all of these students gathered around me and to have all of these students have crushes on me. That's just a part of what happens when you have a certain type of gift. And if you don't have balance in your life, like let's say you don't have a social life, outside of your work as a teacher, and the only people you're interacting with are students, then you're going to end up picking your romantic partners from your students, which mm. isn't appropriate because you have power over them. So there's an imbalance in your life there. You don't have equal time for like your family, your social life, your entertainment, and also your spiritual and vocational work. So you have to have that balance in your life. Otherwise, you're going to fall prey to certain behaviors that really aren't healthy. And that's true also with physical, yeah, if you're always meditating, but you're not exercising your body, you're going to develop 
disease and, and the same with food. Like some people are extreme in that they overeat unhealthy foods. And that's one form of imbalance. Another form of imbalance is people who fast all the time. Um, I went through point. a phase like that back <laughs> in the seventies. I did too. I used to be always fasting and, and not yeah. eating. And, uh, and people can get too caught up in that where mm-hmm. they're doing so much that they're actually suffering from malnutrition or they're meditating so much that they're not, they've lost the ability to communicate with other people because <laughs> they're just always by themselves. And, and then they start having, you know, um, problems in their life because they don't know how to communicate because they've been so focused on the inner. So yeah, there's a lot of forms of, of imbalance that can interfere specifically with our ability to help people. It's also the case if we're just too focused in one way. Obsessive. Yeah, we're not going to be available to help a broad range of people if we're only focused in one way. I mean, I can think of an example that comes to mind that I've seen a lot of recently is that some people get really obsessed with a particular diet and they get so obsessed with it that they think it's the key to everything and that everybody should eat this one way. If you get obsessed with a certain diet and you're a healer, you might try to get all of your clients to follow your diet. And then, oh, you're not going to get better if if you're eating meat or if you're consuming alcohol or if you're eating nightshade vegetables, right? People get really obsessed with particular dietary restrictions as the key to health or the key to spiritual development. And that can create an imbalance where you're overly focused on that one thing and there might be some people in your class, or your congregation, or your clientele who, for whom that's not really going to work. And you're missing out now on an opportunity to help that person because you're not open to helping them in other ways. You're only open to helping them by having them get on this diet. And you see that with a lot of healers, that they get caught up in one particular type of treatment. Everyone has to get this treatment. <laughs> yeah, we all have a fanatical streak, you know, that we can, we can fall prey to. Yeah. So anything imbalanced like that can affect your ability to to help people and and even cause you to harm people. Well, great. I really enjoyed this conversation and I really enjoyed your book and I highly recommend it. There are a lot of interesting points in your book that we didn't get a chance to to cover, obviously. So I'll put a link to it on your page on BatGap and a link to your website. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, you're doing some stuff with the Shift Network. And there's classes on my website that people mm-hmm. can take on demand. Like I have a class about auras and I have a medical intuition class on my website. Do you still do private consultations? I'm not doing private consultations right now. My guides have me on a break from that. I'm just okay. writing books and teaching classes. But I also have a podcast and I have a, a mighty network community that people can join. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff on my website. I have. Well, I'll link to that yeah. and people can explore it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching. My next interview will be with a quantum physicist, which is a stretch for me because I don't really, well, you have a degree in physics, don't you? But I don't. But there's so many people with spiritual interests who are referring to quantum this and quantum that. And I want to talk to her about some of the concepts that are bandied about in the name of spirituality and physics and whether those are valid or not from a physicist's perspective. Anyway, that's what we'll do. So thanks, Jennifer, Lisa. Yeah, thanks for having me. I started out in physics, and so I love the connections between uh, the new string theory and the dimensional work. Yeah, uh, all that stuff. Good. All righty. Well, thanks. We'll be in touch. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. 